Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Just Married. Last week, we looked at the vow of priority as it relates to personal relationships. This week, Lead Pastor David Fossil has us take an in-depth look at the vow of permanence. Join us as Pastor Dave gives us some insight on how to make marriages and relationships last. Last week, we uh, ended up our study and we started talking about the idea that marriage is not like a Duraflame log. We, we talked about the idea that you can't expect your marriage uh, and the fires of passion to continue to burn if all you do is sit back on the couch and watch it. There's nothing really in life that you can ignore, that you can neglect, and it, it, it will improve. Nothing. You, you can't do that with your body. If I sit back, back and eat ding-dongs and, and, and you know, not exercise, my body's not going to improve. Right? If my business, I, I don't hire good people and, and I don't pay the bills and, and, and I neglect to do advertising, my business is not going to grow. My landscaping, my lawn, if I don't water it, if I don't pull weeds, if I don't fertilize it, if I don't do things for my lawn, it's, it's going to get to be a mess. You cannot ignore and leave things unattended in life and expect them to improve. Especially marriage. M- marriage is not like a Duraflame log. And every single couple here that has been married for more than five years and has a good marriage will attest to this truth. Good marriages are hard work. They require energy and they require effort. And that's what this series is about. To put the Duraflame log down and to give us all some relationship ideas on what we're to do. Now, last week and, and continuing on to next week, just a three-part series, it is all based upon the two most important verses in the Bible on marriage. They are so important, they appear in the second chapter of the book, uh, of the Bible. Genesis 2. Right away they come up, and here's what comes up. Let's put it on the screen. Now, this is Genesis 2, 24 and 25. It is repeated five times in the Bible. That's how big a deal it is, okay? And and in it, God has just created the world. He's created Adam and Eve, and right away he establishes this thing called marriage. And here's what he says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and leave his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, my guess is every single one of us has heard that before. We've heard it at a wedding. It kind of, you know, it sounds like something we've heard before. It's amazing, though, as important as this is and as often as it is repeated in the Bible, we don't really know what that means. What we talked about is that there are four commitments. There are four principles. There are four vows. That's what we're calling it. Vows in these two verses that God gives to every married couple and says, if you want a good marriage, do these four things. We started last week and we looked at the first one. It's based upon the word leave. And we talked about how that meant and talked about the vow of priority. When you get married, you are to leave mom and dad. What did that mean? You are to sever the umbilical cord, the emotional umbilical cord, the financial umbilical cord, the psychological umbilical cord. You are to cut that off with the two most important people in your life up until that point, mom and dad, and you are to reattach that to your spouse. From that moment on, the most important human relationship in your life 
is not mom and dad. It's not your co-workers. It's not even your children. It's your spouse. It's your spouse. And if you don't have that wrong, eventually you're going to have issues. You're going to have troubles. You have to learn how to leave. Now, that doesn't mean ignore. That doesn't mean mistreat. In fact, that goes exactly against one of the Ten Commandments, where to honor our parents. But you are to psychologically remove that. If you weren't here last week and you're married or just about ready to get married, you, want, you need to go on the website, listen to the podcast, or watch the video because it's important. It's, we also talk, by the way, of parents who are ruining the, the marriages of their kids because they're not letting them do that. You are nagging them to death and you've got to back off and let them live their life. Okay? Help, yes, but let them live their life. Priority number one, or vow number one, the vow of priority. Second vow. We're going to talk about that this morning. It's based upon the word united in the second phrase there. We're going to talk and see how this is, talks about the vow of permanence. If you have the study guide that's in your program, I want you to write that down. The vow of permanence. You say, well, what does the vow of permanence mean? Let's put the definition up on the screen. The vow of, uh, of permanence says this. I promise to stick to my marriage through good and bad. I promise to stick through my marriage, through up and down, through mountaintop and valleys. And again, every single married person here will tell you that's true. You're going to have good times and not so good times. And God intends and wants you to make a commitment to stick it out. You go, well, how does this come from this verse? Well, again, I've underlined and kind of bolded that word. It comes from this phrase that a husband and a wife should be united to one another. Most of the times, I don't want to give you Greek words in the New Testament and Hebrew words in the Old Testament, unless they're really important. And this one's really important. Let me show you what this Hebrew word means. It's the word dabak, okay, in Genesis 2.24. The word dabak that we translate unite. Now, here's literally what this word means. It means to cling, to adhere or to glue something together. In the book of Job, he uses this same word, dabak, to refer to what leprosy did to its, his skin. The leprosy, dabak, to clung to his skin. In Ezekiel, he uses this word, dabak, and talks about how, how the scales of a fish, uh, uh, scales cling to a fish. In Malachi, he uses this word to say that a husband should dabak, cling to, adhere to, glue to his wife. In fact, in the English version, it says to cleave to his wife. Have you heard that? That's the old English. A husband should cleave to his wife. That's the old King James English. By the way, just so we're clear, the word to cleave has nothing to do with a meat cleaver. Okay? So if you're here wanting to know about slicing and dicing your spouse, that's for another week. Okay? It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with clinging and adhering and gluing together. Why? Because God intended marriage to be permanent. He intended it to be forever. This comes up quite a bit, actually. Let me give you a couple verses. Let's put them up on the screen. Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. If you've ever been to a church and you've had seen a husband and wife facing each other and, and, and there's this vow where they go, till death do us part, that's not trying to be romantic. That actually has all kinds of biblical precedent. Why? Because of the vow of permanence. God intended for marriage to be forever. 
Jesus is speaking in Mark chapter 10. And he says this, what God has joined together or what he has glued together, husband and wife, let no one separate. Let no one separate. I did a little, uh, little experiment yesterday at home. I, t- I grabbed two pieces of paper and I debuck them. I glued them together. Th- this is what God intends marriage to look like. To take two individuals and to bring them together and glue them together. Unfortunately, however, in our society and in our culture, many of us try to undo what, what God has joined together. And, and what we try and do is we try and do this to it. How's it going, man? <laughs> Have any of you either personally had gone through this or had a close friend go through this? It's what we call divorce. And it's not God going, I got rules. It's because he knows that this is what it does to our soul. This is what it does to our family. And it creates pain. And it's no fun. It's no fun. He goes, what I I brought together, I, I never intended for this to happen. I never wanted that for you. I wanted you to experience this thing called marriage and it to be completely fulfilling. I, I, I've heard that people have said that there are three seasons or stages of marriage. The, the first stage, let's put it on the screen, is the romance stage. This is where everything is ideal. Have you seen couples like this? They're always holding hands. They're always glaring, you know, looking into each other's eyes. I love you. I love you more. No, I love you more. It's so cute, right? <laughs> But it doesn't last very long, okay? This is when everything is ideal. The next stage is what is known as, let's put it up there, is the reality stage. And this is when marriage is becoming an ordeal, okay? About, about six months to a year in, you, you start to, to, to realize, you know, some of the ladies, you know, uh, what, what happened to that Prince Charming who showed up on a white horse? Now he's got a beer belly sitting with ribbed jeans and sweats on the couch just watching NFL all weekend. What is going on? This is when guys start to wonder, you know, uh, Sleeping Beauty, when she wakes up, she's not that nice all the time. You know? Couples in this stage will tell you that marriage is like a phone call in the middle of the night. First you get the ring, and then you wake up. (laughs) Marriage is like getting into a bathtub. After a while, it ain't that hot. By the way, you know if you're at this stage... You know if you're in the reality stage, if you look at couples in the first stage and you're sickened by them. <laughs> look at them. That is not right. He's, he's rubbing her back during worship. That is so stupid. <laughs> Boy, are they going to grow up? That, so it goes from everything is ideal to it's becoming an ordeal. And then eventually you start looking for a new deal. I know of a jewelry store in Hollywood that has on its front window a sign that says this, we rent wedding rings. Because that's what our society has come to. 
It's unfortunate and it's sad, but 50% of us will get to stage three. And, and we will experience something that looks like this. I did hear of, a, of an attorney who uh, I think rather cleverly said this. He, said, uh, he stated, there are two processes which must never be started prematurely, embalming and divorce. Um, what I want to encourage you to do, you know, this is not a topic that I would bring up on any other given Sunday, except we're talking about the vow of permanence. So I think it's appropriate for, for, let's just talk about this for a little bit, right? Just let me take you on a couple minutes. What does the Bible say about divorce? And let's be real about this. Let's put it on the screen. The reality of divorce, three things I want you to know, is that God reluctantly allows divorce. He reluctantly allows for it at times. Um, there's a conversation going on in Mark 10 where the Pharisees are trying to trip and trick Jesus and they ask him about divorce. And, and Jesus basically goes, you know, I, I don't want it. I don't ever want it. It's not what I wanted for you guys. But, you know, I guess, I guess in some circumstances I'll allow it. But I don't want it. He, he reluctantly allows for it at times. And if you want to spend more time talking to me, I'd be happy to have coffee with you about what he allows and what he doesn't allow. Okay? But he, he's kind of like, I don't want it, but it happens, I guess. But, you know. The second one is that God is saddened by divorce. I want to be honest with you. I, I was a little chicken when I wrote that. Because that's not exactly what Malachi 2 says. Malachi 2.16 says this. God hates divorce. I don't know about you guys, but that's a word I don't let my kids use. That's a strong word. I, I don't want you using that word. That's the word God uses. He hates it. You know, sometimes I think we, we imagine God as some cerebral God, you know, sitting in the heaven. No, he's a God that has feelings. And when, when there's divorce, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. It saddens him. He does not like it at all. The last thing you need to know about divorce is that God offers forgiveness for divorce. Now, let me be real clear what I'm saying here and what I'm implying. What I am saying is that some of us got divorced for reasons outside of God's predetermined exceptions. What I'm saying is that some of us, when we got divorced, ignored this book. What I'm saying is that some of us, when we got divorced, were dead wrong. Now, this is not me getting in your face. Because that's not my job. It's not my place. It is me wanting to help you. You see, if you do something, anything, that is outside of God's will, anything, the answer is not to shrug your shoulders and go, oh, well, everyone does it. The solution is not to go, well, it's water underneath the bridge. That's not the solution. Here's the solution. God, I'm sorry. You know, when I look back on it, um, yeah, I guess I was selfish. I guess I did things I shouldn't have done, and I, I messed up, and I'm sorry. Why is that so important? Because whether you realize it or not, if you have not yet done that, there is a wedge in your soul that has not been removed yet, and it is affecting your current marriage. You've got to do this. It's a simple thing. God, I'm sorry. I messed up. 
And then you trust that God's grace and his forgiveness is big enough that he'll forgive you and he'll wash you clean and you can move on and be a brand new person. Now, you know, I don't even have to tell you this, there's always some lingering consequences. You know that. But, but you can be made clean in God's eyes. And so I just want to encourage you. Again, if you want to sit down and have coffee with me, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. And I wouldn't normally bring this stuff up, but it's, it's, if we're ever going to bring it up, today's the day, right? So here's what the Bible says about divorce. Now, if you take your study, I look at the back side of the study guide. The back side of the study guide, because I don't want to spend any more time here. I want to talk to you about how do you make your marriage last? If you're currently married or you're, you're single but want to get married, when you get married, what do you do to make your relationship last? What, what, what do you do if, if your marriage is getting a little stale? What, what do you do if you don't seem to talk much anymore? What, what, do, you, what do you do when you don't seem to laugh much anymore? What, what, what do you do when you don't seem to hold hands or kiss much anymore? But what do you do when you, when you seem to act more like roommates than lovers and spouses? What, what do you do when, when, when a date is an afternoon at Costco? What do you do when a romantic dinner is Panda Express brought back to the house? What do you do, right? There's some things you can do. You can turn it around, right? Or else we're just wasting our time here, right? You can turn it around. I can turn it around. We can all improve our marriages a little bit. I've got five principles and ideas to, to make your marriage last and make it good. Now, principle number one is actually for singles. In fact, if you're married, don't even write it down. You're wasting your time. Don't even write it down. I told you singles to stick with me, right? Number one is just for singles. Write this down. Put it up there. Choose a spouse wisely. Some of you already did that. Some of you haven't yet. I got an email a while back about, uh, about this, about choosing a spouse. And here's what the email said. It said, a store that sells husbands has just opened up in New York City, where a woman may go and choose a husband. Among the instructions at the entrance is a description of how the store operates. You may visit the store only once. There are six floors... And the attributes of the man increases as the shopper ascends the floors or the flights. There is, however, a catch. You may choose any man from a particular floor. Or you may choose to go up a floor, but you cannot go back down except to exit the building. So a woman went to the husband's store to pick herself out a husband. On the first floor, there was a sign that read, Floor number one, these men have jobs. But she decided to move on. The second floor, the sign read, floor number two, these men have jobs and love kids. But she again decided to move on. The third floor sign read, floor number three, these men have jobs, love kids, and are extremely good looking. Wow, she thought, but felt compelled to keep going up. She, go, she went to the fourth floor, and the sign read, floor number four, these men have jobs, love kids, are drop-dead gorgeous, help around the house, and have a romantic streak. Oh, mercy me, she claimed. I can hardly stand it. But still, she went to the sixth floor, and there the sign read, floor number six, you are the visitor 31,456,113 to this floor. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists solely as proof that women aren't possible to please. Thank you for shopping at the husband's store. Please exit at your convenience. But it goes on. To avoid any gender bias, the owner opened a new wives' store immediately across that street with the same instructions. The first floor 
has wi- had wives that really enjoy making love to their husbands. The second floor has wives that enjoy making love to their husbands and have money. Floors three, four, five, and six have never been visited by any man. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if it were that easy? We could go to a store next to Macy's and pick someone out. We could go on eBay and bid on someone. I guess there's mail-order brides, but I digress. Don't go with the mail-order brides, right? If you want your marriage to last, this is step number one. It's the most important thing you do. I remember when I was a five-year-old boy. You know, moms, traditionally it's moms, not so much dads, but uh, mom would come and pray with me. I'm five years old. And she would do what any mom prays for, you know, for their kid. And then she would always start praying and she would say this, Dear God, Please help David find the right spouse someday. Now, I'm five years old, so I'd be like, Ah, Mom, no! (laughs) But a couple years later, I was really happy she prayed that. Maybe something that you parents should start praying for. I remember my dad said to me, David, I want you to know something. Other than your decision to follow Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the most important decision you will ever make is who are you going to marry it's more important than where you're going to go to college it's more important than the job you're going to have it's more important than how much money you're going to make it more important than wherever you're going to live because it will affect your relationship and your life forever forever and that's how some of you have to think about it now please when i say choose a spouse wisely i don't say be picky because that implies that you've you got too high a standards. Now, you do have to have standards. We all have to have standards, but be realistic. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Sandy's not perfect. No one's perfect. But you have to have priorities. What are the most important things you are to look for? Oh, by the way, this book has a lot to say about how to make important decisions, even how to pick a spouse. Solomon, writing the book of Proverbs, how to have wisdom, spends almost the whole chapter 31 trying to give his son wisdom on how to pick a wife. Be smart be wise because it will affect your ability to fulfill the vow of of permanence because it's both of you it's both of you okay if you're already married now start taking notes point number two let's put it up there point number two is continue to pursue each other continue to pursue each other um I, i know some of you caught it when i gave you the definition for dabak to be united. I read the first part, but not the second definition. The first primary definition is to cling, adhere, or glue. That's where we get the vow of permanence. But there's a secondary definition of this word. It means to catch something by pursuit. To catch something by pursuit. Have you ever guys watched the the Discovery Channel and the cheetah is running after the antelope? Ah, And he grabs the antelope. That's what a lot of us guys do with, with women and our wives. We got her. We got married to her. And then what do we do? We sit back and we start applying the Duraflame approach to marriage. Only one problem with that. That Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 2 means to continue pursuing. Do you remember what it was like when you pursued him or her? You would say certain things. You would do certain things. You would send notes or in this day and age, texts. And this whole pursuit was the goal was to convince them to be with me. Be with me. You would do nice things to be with me. 
you are to continue doing that. And the problem is some of us stop. We stop pursuing because we assume, yeah, she's not going anywhere. She got a ring on her finger. Well, that's where your marriage starts to tumble a little bit. Uh, the, the, the Bible actually has some verses on this. Judges chapter 20, verse 25. They pursued Dabak hard after them. Psalm 63, verse 8. Um, this is a great verse if you're a stalker. I follow close behind you. So if you're a stalker, the Psalm says 63, 8. It's Dabak. I pursue. I continue to pursue. I'm right behind her. You go, well, how do I do this? I don't know how to do it. I can't spend a lot of time here. I'm going to give you three quick ways to pursue your spouse. Put them up there. Number one is when you think something good, say it. I talked just a little bit about this last week. When you think something good about your spouse, say it. It can be as small as, you know, thanks for taking out the garbage or thanks for mowing the lawn. Boy, the dinner tasted good. So something more, 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 more foundational, you know. I really love you because, fill in the blank. You know, we think these things, then we don't say them. Say it. Second of all, when you think something special, do it. Isn't it interesting that we judge other people and our spouse based upon their actions? Well, you didn't do that. Or you did do that. We base our our children, our our friends, we, we judge them based upon what they do. But we judge ourselves based upon our intentions. Well, I intended to do that. I didn't get around, but I intend, I meant well. But you didn't do it. See, the goal is to, to, to close the gap between intentions and actions. If you think of something special, do it. Do it for her. Do it for him. Continue to pursue them. Continue to convince them. Be with me. Be with me. The last thing is when you want something different, be it. You see, the temptation during this series, or as you're listening this morning, is be sitting there going, I sure hope he's listening. (laughs) The problem is you can't change him. You can't change her. That's not your job, by the way. It's God's job. But you can change the environment in which your home operates. And and you can do that. See, if you want a different marriage, it starts with what you are going to do different. If you are where you are right now, you had something to do with it. If you want something different, if you want it just a little bit better, you do something different. Let God work on them, okay? Let God work on them. But, 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 but you do something different. Keep pursuing them. It's a magic formula for improving your, your marriage, okay? Let, let, let's keep moving on. Number three, write this down. Offer and seek forgiveness. Offer and seek forgiveness. There's this old story about this guy who loved classic cars. Loved classic cars. He didn't have a lot of money, uh, but he had enough money to buy one beat-up car. But he, he, he turned this into a gem. It was a, it was a 1958 classic two-seat Thunderbird convertible, and he made it awesome. Awesome. He would shine it up on the weekends. He had a tarp that covered it. It was in the garage. They would drive it. He and his wife, you know, just, just once, you know, on the weekend for like 45 minutes, you know, and on streets where there were not a lot of cars. He loved that car. Well, this couple, they, 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 you know, his job transferred. I mean, they moved to another state. They took the car with them and parked it in the new garage. They had just been there for a couple weeks and he had to go on a business trip. There she is in a new state, in a new area. She doesn't have any friends. And so Saturday afternoon rolls around, and she's like, I'm bored. What am I going to do? And then she had an idea. 
I'll grab the Thunderbird and take it for a spin. So she went into the garage. She took the tarp off. She got in and she started driving in her wind. The hair is blowing in her wind and the sun is beating down on her. She's got the radio on and she's singing away. And she's having a great time. And then, and, and then a teenager w- 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 had blew, blew a stoplight in, in his pickup truck and plowed into the Thunderbird. She was fine, but the car was totaled. About 30 minutes later, the cops showed up and they did, you know, do what they do. They take the information and registration. They needed all that, that, that in, contact info. So she went to go find it into the glove box and she's going through the, the glove box. And, and as she's going through there, she sees right at the top, there's a letter with her name on it. So she opens it up and, and here's what it says. Dear Beth, if you're reading this note, it is because you've had an accident with my car. Just remember, honey, I love you, and no matter what the car looks like, I forgive you. Do you do that? Or, or, or are we one of those, those people that just holds on? You know, we, we kind of put it in our mental notebook, and, and every once in a while we bring it up at opportune times when we want to smack them upside the head. Oh, it's good to do that. Yeah. Oh, this is like that one time. You remember that one time? And we just hold on. We have not given them forgiveness. We've not done that. It's critically important that you learn how to do this. Why? Because you're not perfect. Neither am I, neither is Sandy. And when I do something that's a little boneheaded, you know what I need? I need her to give me forgiveness. If I really have maturity, I have the courage to say, Sandy, I'm sorry. She goes, I forgive you. And it's done. And it's over. And then it can be water under the bridge. And then when she messes up, Dave, I'm sorry. Powerful words. Oh, by the way, God never asks you to do something. He hasn't given you an example of how to do. And he has forgiven how much garbage from us. I just want you to give just a little bit to, to those you care about most, your family. Give it to your family. Why? Because at the very least, it makes you Christ-like. And the, the, the next bonus is it makes your relationship a little bit better. Learn to offer and learn to seek forgiveness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul, writing about love, says, you want to know what genuine love is? Genuine love is, is that which forgives and keeps no record of wrongs. Keeps no record of wrongs. You forgive and you move on. And can we be honest? There's some big stuff some of us have to forgive. And it's hard. It's hard. God asks you to do that anyways. Number four, you have to pull some weeds. Pull some weeds. Marriage is like landscaping or your front lawn. It's not only putting, for it to look nice, you not only have to put some good stuff in, you need to take some bad stuff out. Some weeds. Now, there's all kinds of weeds we could talk about. I'm going to give you six, and I want you to pick one. Let's put the six up there, okay? The six weeds that I want to encourage you to think about pulling. One is anger. Anger. Statistics tell us that one in five Americans have an anger management problem. What I want you to do is just kind of look up and down your row. Just look up and down your row right now. There's at least five people in every row. You know what that means? That means that at least one of you, probably two of you, is going to lose it this afternoon. 
when you're watching the 49ers get pummeled by the Packers. This man has an anger problem right here, you see? Sit down! <laughs> I got to get all my 49er jokes in before the season starts, based upon the Raiders season last year. But um, some of us, how do you do, deal with anger? Some of us are, are the volcano. You know how that is. You got peat volcanoes in your home? And under veins start sticking out. They just spew lava over everyone. Some of us, we're far too sophisticated. Oh, no. We're not the volcano. We're the dripping faucet. Stop already! We just nag and pin and nag and pin. Both of them are wrong. This is one of those weeds that goes deep. You can go out into your marriage relationship and you can get it out, you can pull it out, but the root is still there and you're going to probably have to do a couple times and try and yank that sucker out. It, it does not make you an attractive individual. It, it does not build your marriage and it does not please your God. Pull that weed. Pull that weed. Second of all is defensiveness. You know what defensiveness is. This is being a little oversensitive when, when an issue gets brought up. You know, so, you know um, your, your spouse brings up something and you get so defensive so quickly, you can't even get to the whole issue. I mean, some, some of us deal with that at work or at school or at, in classmates. Some of us deal with that at home. Don't be so oversensitive. Don't be so defensive. Now, a, a, a cousin of this weed is denial. This is, this is the idea that some of us have in our brain, you know, that I, I don't have issues. It's not my issues. And let me just say on behalf of the rest of us, we are so glad that God has put you in our life to bless us. Thank you so much. You got issues. Everyone has issues. And one of the weeds that some of us have is denial. You just got to be open and I, I got issues. Now, I'm not suggesting you necessarily post it on Facebook. But at least in your family, at least with your spouse, they know got to pull that weed. You got to be honest about yourself. Interrupting. Um, some of us are talkers. My job is honestly to talk. But when I get home, I got to learn every once in a while to, to stop talking and listen and not interrupt. Why? I, I wish I could spend more time on communication. It's importance and value in marriage and relationships. We can't. But this is an important principle. Stop. Let the other finish their thought and finish their sentence. Listen. Don't interrupt. And then you can add something. You can respond. Two more weeds. Criticism. I don't have a quarter on me, but I want you to imagine I do, okay? And about this size. A quarter represents all the bad and negative of your spouse. The sun represents everything good of your spouse. Now, if, if all you do is criticize, if all you do is focus on their faults, if all you do is focus on where they're not measuring up, if all you do is you nag, 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 and look, and eventually that's all you're focused on, eventually the small quarter can drown out the sun. I, I'm not saying that your spouse doesn't have issues they got to work on. What I am saying is they got a lot of good stuff. They do reasons you were attracted to them, reasons you care for them and you love them. And here's all I'm saying. You guys need to learn to talk about the quarters in your life. I'm not saying, but you also need to learn to appreciate the, the sun and all the positive things they have. Don't be so critical, right? Okay? 
Number, num- number six, last one is sarcasm. Sarcasm. Sarcasm um, can be a lot of fun. Guys, for guys, it's their primary form of humor. It's hilarious to sarcastically jab a buddy. Not so good when you do it with your spouse. Can I just suggest you got, it's better to cut it out because you never know if you're catching them at a bad moment. I would suggest that's a weed that got, has to get pulled from a marriage relationship. If you want to jab your friends, and, and, and that's different, okay? But in the marriage relationship at home, I want you to eliminate that. Now, real quick, I don't want you to pick more than one. I want you to look at the weeds real quick. Look at that screen. I want you to pick one you know you got to get rid of. Okay, you got it? Okay, let's put the last point up there, and I'm going to let you get going. The last thing I want to encourage you to do to make your marriage last is resolve to follow God's plan. What I'm really asking you to do is come back next week. Because so far, all we've done is talk about this book and the first two vows. The vow of priority. I need to leave my parents and have my wife as my primary, most important priority for my human relationship. Vow number two, the vow of permanence. I got to do whatever I, I can do to keep us glued together. And it's difficult and it's hard and you're going to have to work at it. But that's what God intended for you. And you can make it work. You can do this. Okay. Next week, we're going to talk about the vow of partnership or friendship. You know, how, how did they become one? We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the most misunderstood uh, verse and phrase in these two verses. The idea that they were naked and had no shame. I am not suggesting you should walk around the house butt naked. Okay? So we're going to talk about the vow of purity. But here's the big point. Even if you can't make it next week, you want your marriage to last. You want your life to be the kind of life it should be. Follow God's plan. When it goes downhill... This is the answer. This is the answer. It's always been the answer. Let's stand. We'll close in a word of prayer. I'll let you get going. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the married couples. I pray that you would encourage them and bless them and make and give them the kind of relationship that they want and that you want. Father, for the couples and the spouses that are here today, and they're struggling. And maybe they've thought about calling it quits. I I pray that you would help them and maybe give them a little bit of hope that they they can maybe turn it around. Father, for those of us that maybe we just did that, we just got divorced or we've been divorced, and and Father, I pray that you would make them new and you would make them whole. Father, I, I pray that you would remind every single one of us that because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross, no matter what garbage we have in our past, no matter what we did, right or wrong, that was done to us or that we did, because of Jesus, we could be made new and we could be made whole. And we can have a life that is productive and fulfilling and satisfying that. I pray that you would convince every one of us of that. Father, thank you so much for your word that's so incredibly practical. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. 
Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.